Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Here we are back in the studios of Main FM. The show is Deep Trouble and we're getting towards the end of the second series here. But today, Associate Professor Stephen Croucher, Professor and Head of the School of Communication, Journalism and Marketing at Massey University. How did you discover Stephen Croucher, Mark? I read an article that he wrote in the conversation about the psychology of hate in the wake of the Christchurch shootings. And this interview was done just not long after. I was interested that he doesn't like to use a name of the person responsible for those shootings. Yes, I was going to talk about that. So to show respect for his wishes, we haven't used the name of the shooter in this interview. There's a couple of terms that perhaps you could explain. You talk about superordinate goals. Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, no, so superordinate goals are essentially uh, some of the research, and I think it comes from the 70s, was about how to end in-group, out-group prejudice and fighting between in-groups and out-groups. And so in-group, out-group prejudice is the underlying basis for racism, essentially. And the idea was that it wasn't enough to get two groups together and introduce them to each other. So we had this idea that if you just got people to meet people of a race that they were uh, that they were xenophobic towards, that that would break down barriers. But what you actually had to do was get people together in meaningful, committed action. And that's what a superordinate goal was. So the communities were working towards this higher purpose together. And that would really bring people together and break down the barriers and show people the commonalities that we share rather than some of the differences. For example, like a community kitchen. Right. We had some of the silent seekers from Iran up here recently involved in cooking, making you know special evenings devoted to the cuisine of Persia. Yes. And it was, I think, uh, a very rewarding evening mixing with these men and they are mostly men who are justifiably proud of their persian cuisine mm. and their culture and their culture of course and yeah. their culture what do you think about the role of online gaming like in the case of the massacre in christchurch mm. we had somebody imitating a very well-known online game I think that there's sort of a nested reciprocity of causes involved in this. So you've got communities like 4chan and 8chan where people are essentially creating echo chambers of hate and also escalation. So people are posting things, they're writing things that are essentially racist or hate speech and proposing violence and things like that. Then you've got this kind of, what the internet does is it kind of depersonalises and makes it not real. And I think gaming does that to some extent as well. I certainly wouldn't place gaming as causative, as a single causative factor, but you have to be aware that certainly people could be desensitised through exposure in gaming and the idea of not making it real. So there was a sense with this crime, this massacre, that there was some unreality to it. 
for the person committing it and the way that they then, uh, you know, they posted it up to Facebook, they mm. took a video, they mentioned PewDiePie. All of it has an unreality to it, doesn't it? Even though the person may be legally viewed as same, but there's a kind of a, a depersonalization to this whole experience, mm. which is obviously dangerous. All of it together is dangerous. It's multiple causation. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's have a listen to Mark Halloran in conversation with Associate Professor Stephen Croucher. I suppose I wanted to start off by talking to you about the events in Christchurch and offer my condolences to the people of New Zealand, but to also okay. find out how this has affected you personally and psychologically. Well, personally, I'm, you can probably hear from my voice, I'm not Kiwi, I'm American, living here now almost 30 years. And for me, it brought back memories really of September 11 and other events like the Oklahoma City bombing and it really made me think about other events similar to this, you know, different magnitudes, of course. But the first time I heard anything about it, I was with some colleagues and we saw it on Stuff, the website, and we didn't know what was going on yet. But then once everything came to light, the gravity of it, it really shook me and made me think, you know, what the, excuse me for saying this, what the hell? I mean, this is you know, I left the United States, you know, just because I got tired of the politics there and the hatred there, you know, with the right-wing conservatism and the alt-right and all this, you know, developing there. And then it's now here. I knew it was everywhere, but then this, it just really kind of shook me in that way where I just was, for a while, for a few days, I was just kind of like, wow, I saw this in the United States. I saw how it changed the U.S. And I was like, I'm just waiting to see how it's going to change New Zealand, I guess. Well, I think that's part of the shock, isn't it, to some extent, because New Zealand seems like a country that is immune to things like this. It does seem that way. I mean, it's there's so many places that are like this that you know people don't think it'll happen here. And all it takes is one or two crazy people or obsessed maniacs and you know, just jerks, I think. There's, there's other words I'll say, but I'm not going to say it, to ruin a place. And I don't think they've ruined New Zealand. I think what they've done is actually made New Zealanders look to each other and say, we're better than this, and we're not going to let one person change who we are. Oh, and this related to your work in uh, the theory is integrated threat theory. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. During my doctorate, I really started to look at North African immigrants and their migration to France. That was what my, most of my work was on. And what I found was really that a lot of the prejudice and dislike toward North African immigrants, particularly in France, which I was studying, was really a fear. People were, during the interviews I did, I actually lived in 2005 and six. I was living with North African immigrants and also with, I would say, white Catholic families. And the white Catholic families I was staying with, mainly secular Catholics, were just expressing fear of these North African immigrants coming in, and it led me to kind of look at really what could explain this theoretically, what could really look at this, because I was, you know, trying to write a thesis, trying to write you know, a dissertation, and really this, you know, concept of integrated threat coming more out of social psychology, looked at the idea that most prejudice and discrimination can be explained, I hate to say it fairly simply, but 
almost from a, a very simple argument that the dominant group, members of the dominant group fear that a minority is going to take away their resources, whether it's economic resources, political resources, social resources. What I mean by that is they're going to change society in some way. And so if you look to, say, far-right groups like the alt-right and others, they take it a step further. We can be afraid of someone and not communicate with them, which is just kind of a fear or just an uncomfortableness, which most people have to a certain extent of the other. But the extreme of that is everything from hate to murder to genocide. So it's a continuum. And I think we're seeing that with these hate groups. Well, white supremacists um, motivated by a white genocide narrative, yeah. uh, which seems to be coming out of, uh, out of Europe, and that's in response to an immigration crisis. Could you describe what that narrative is? Sure. Well, really, if you look to the idea of the white genocide, I mean, it goes back to over the past, say, 10 years, I would say, there's been a growing narrative, in particular over the past, say, five years, it goes back further than 10, but probably in the past five, 10 years, there's been more and more, I'd say, fringe groups, like you have, you know, the Sons of Odin in Finland, who will roam the streets of some Finnish cities, arguing that these minorities, particularly non-white minorities, so they're more identifiable, are changing the white race, they're changing white Europe, and some of the ways they're doing that is they're moving to Europe, and they're doing a few things that are changing it. One of them is they're producing more babies. As we look to Europe, generally the white Judeo-Christian Europe is not producing as many children, but the new immigrants generally have a higher birth rate, so the population physically is changing. You'll see that they're changing the economies, these new immigrants. So you'll see more shops opening. Like in Finland, you would see more kebab shops. And in fact, when I was living in Finland, that was actually one of the best places to eat, for the kebab and the pizza shops which are not owned by white Finns. They're owned by immigrants from predominantly Turkey or other parts of you know, southeastern Europe. And so the white genocide believes that these individuals who are coming in are basically darkening Europe physically, economically, politically. Like in France, you'll see during, I think, the 2011 EU referendum that could have included Turkey in the EU fully, there were numerous talking heads on television saying, do we want 90 million Muslims coming in and destroying Europe's history and Europe's culture? Well, that's just a jab basically at allowing 90 million non-whites in to change what Europe looks like. And that's kind of the rhetoric behind this white genocide. And it just keeps growing more and more as more and more non-whites, as they're called, or basically non-Judeo-Christian come into Europe. And it's just spreading. You see it in the U.S. as well, this white genocide rhetoric. It seems to be, when I was reading your work, it seems to be motivated by anxiety and fear. And I'd spoken to a moral philosopher, Dr. Dean Cocking, who'd written a book about the, the internet and how the internet facilitates this in relation to the way that in-groups form and how this, I guess, people, people's algorithms can really strengthen people become victims of their algorithms in terms of confirmation bias. And yeah. so we can do this in a way that we've never been able to do before. But uh, I'm also reminded that Yuval Noah Harari, the uh, Jewish historian, talks about how humans are to some extent have always been xenophobic and that they yeah. look for difference and boundary and tribe. Mm -hmm. And so 
that seems to be a very difficult problem to overcome. That's what we're facing. It is. If you look to humans, the first thing we see when we see someone else is the color of their skin. We don't know their religion unless they're wearing, say, now we see a hijab or a burqa or some sort of cultural symbol. But even then, still, the first thing we see is the color of their skin. And so it does differentiate in-group, out-group. I wanted to talk to you about, which which is something that I've been interested in, is how we break down confirmation bias and how we break down in-group, out-group differences. Sure. So I think there's a few ways to break down differences. And one of the first things that has to happen is it has to start with children. And this is something that a lot of people just don't think about. But one of the things that happens is this idea of differentiating, whether it's within our own ethnicities or within our own religious groups or within our own groups, starts when we're young. Uh, one of my doctoral students and I looked at how Finns prejudice toward Russian immigrants, and we looked at how it happens among adolescents. And there's a lot of research on prejudice and how it develops basically before people are the age of 13, and how our baseline prejudice develops well before 13. And we're able to find that really if parents and those who are of a slightly older age can really focus on the language they use at home, can look to the social media their children or their, you know, the young ones are viewing, if they can also look at the television they're, they're using and kind of help look to the friends that they're around to make sure that their friends are maybe, if possible, a little diverse. One of the things we found, at least with Finns toward Russian immigrants, is some examples where if Finns don't say things like, well, you know, the typical, you know, Russians are normally a bunch of, you know, drunk bastards who come around and, you know, always get drunk. They don't make those kinds of jokes, which are actually fairly common in some rural areas of Finland if they don't talk about, you know, the aggressive Russians and make jokes, which may seem kind of like, really, people say that, but in some of the rural areas, they do. If they can drop those kinds of jokes, they'll find that, the, you know, the adolescents won't pick those things up, and they're less likely to develop these in-group, out-groups. And even among their peers, they're less likely to spread them. So that's one thing we need to start early. We need to start with our kids and what example we set, because they're going to pick it up. You can probably see this with like three and four year olds. They pick up every word we say. So if we're saying certain things against a group, yes. they're going to pick it up, whether it's our own ethnicity or not. They're going to pick it up. I mean, so you have to start there. That is a good example. I mean, because there is a history in terms of domination between Russia and Finland, isn't there? So yeah. uh, there's already a history of bad blood that runs across generations, yeah. and so it's very hard to press reset and try and facilitate mm-hmm. a way for groups to interact with it, with each other, other in a way that's positive. Yeah, I think the other thing that we often think about like when it comes to, like you know, especially if we're going to think, say, about, say, you know, Muslims and Christians, just to be very broad in two terms, but... If we're looking here at, say, immigrants who came to New Zealand, particularly, say, Muslim immigrants who came to New Zealand, and another way to improve, I would say, you know, in-group, out-group dynamics is more interaction between groups. And one of the things that's happened here over the past, you know, week is more of the mosques have opened their doors to non-Muslims to come in and learn about Islam, to learn what happens in the mosques. So they can realize it's not this, you know, secret shadow society of things going on. So they can learn that it is a place of worship, it is a place of culture, it is a place of socializing. So people who are not Muslims can learn what's going on there. 
And I think that's something that also did happen in the U.S. after 9-11 and happened in the U.K. after the 2005 bombings and others. So I think things like this are important as well to open the doors. I think to keep those doors open. So I really encourage New Zealand that those doors don't close after things, quote, unquote, settle down. Because then we can be both sides can get to know one another more. So I think that's essential. We have to have those communications. You're listening to Dr. Mark Keller in conversation with Professor Stephen Croucher, head of the School of Communication, Journalism and Marketing at Massey University, New Zealand. There was something that was interesting when I was reading your paper because it reminded me of my undergrad in psychology around in-group and out-group behaviour. And it might have been Allport or someone like that, but they were talking about the ingredients that are required to make that contact positive. And they said that it wasn't enough just to ensure that there was contact between groups or even positive contact between groups. The groups in some ways needed to be able to see commonalities and work towards what they called yeah. superordinate goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, very so, much so. So do we do that at the moment? And is that something that we need to do more of? We just need to keep doing more and more. And I think we see that, you know, here. I mean, I think that people think in New Zealand we've done great things. But I think there's a lot more. And I think after the attacks, what we saw is even then I was talking with some staff at our university and they were saying that, you know, it's really interesting. I've had more interaction with some people in the Muslim community than I've ever had before. That's kind of a shame because it's a two-way street where we should be interacting with people who are not like us, but those who are not like us should also be making the same effort. So I think it goes both ways, and I think that's something that people often assume that when you know an immigrant comes to a new place, like I'll use myself as an example, where you know when I moved to Finland, I was an American, spoke English, and spoke French, but moved to Finland, and I didn't just spend time with other Americans. I did as much as I could to keep my American identity, but also spent time with Finns, with other foreigners, tried to not assimilate. I don't subscribe to assimilation. I think that's impossible. But tried to integrate a bit into the society so I wasn't seen as this outsider ghettoizing myself. I think that it's something more and more people who are immigrants need to take on that responsibility. But at the same time, the dominant culture needs to be able to, it needs to be open to accepting the immigrants coming Australia, we talk about Australia as being a multicultural country and a successful multicultural Mm -hmm. country, and certainly on lots of measures and to some extent it is. And there are lots of our communities that are very welcoming. But working with refugees and, and speaking about it anecdotally, what can happen is that people come and if their English is limited, then they really only make friends within their community. So the community can be actually quite receptive, but they, if you speak to them, they say, well, no, I don't really interact with anyone from a different culture. And so mm-hmm. it can be quite isolating, I think. Yes. And that's the case. I mean, we saw that when, even when I was, was in Finland, during the, which is still ongoing, refugee crisis, I had many students I worked with doctoral students who were, you know, Kurdish, who worked at the refugee camps outside of Ivaskula, where I was at, outside of camps in, you know, Lati and other cities, and the stories they told of the refugee men who were brought there and some of the women, there was a lot of isolation, but one of the things that they tried to do at, at these camps is tried to bring people into the cities to try to integrate them, and it wasn't that successful because you'd have you know, 30 or 40 Syrian guys sitting at a bus stop during the day doing nothing. 
And it was a little intimidating for a lot of the small-town Finnish folks. They're like, what's going on here? There's like 30 or 40 guys sitting there doing nothing. And so the, what they needed to do was try to do more things to bring them into the community. So we can't just bring people places and then have them hang out by themselves with their own group. That's going to isolate them. It's going to create animosity among themselves and animosity with the dominant culture. We can't just throw them in the pot because then they're going to like get lost and not know what to do. We have to do more if we bring people to our countries to help them find a way to fit in and to succeed. And there's been really good rhetoric coming from uh, Prime Minister Ardern about how we are helping our immigrants in our society be together. And so I'm really pleased to see some of the rhetoric. It seems that the benefit also is for the dominant group as well, because the greater the degree of meaningful positive contact is going to reduce the potential for this type of radicalization. Like any type of radicalization, those studies around superordinate goals showed that even people that may have had, um, you know, fairly strong racist ideas within very short periods of time of positive contact, uh, that had changed significantly. Yeah. And positive contact is critical, but then we have to be careful of negative contact as well. That's what is just some people don't realize, but all it takes is one negative contact. Like we don't even know with some of these individuals who go totally off and then we don't know what negative contact they've had, if any. And so that's another thing we have to be careful of as well. Uh, I guess uh, I mean, human beings seem to respond to negative events much more strongly than they do to, to positive ones. And their memory for negative events tends to be stronger. It does. Like I've had a few uh, friends of mine, like I'll, I'll just say I have some friends in the United States who are very conservative, very big Trump supporters, who have, you know, are very surprised at the amount of, I guess, openness I have toward different cultures, but I've, you know, lived across, lived over the world and traveled. And when I talk with them sometimes on Facebook or even in person, they'll sometimes talk about, well, you know, I met this one, you know, this is what they'll say, you know, I met this one Islamic guy, and I'm like, well, oh my, let me just correct what you're saying now, but I'll just listen. Yes. I met this one Islamic guy, you know, he was just rude, and he just did this, he was smelly, he was like this, and, you know, they're all like that, Steve, and they're all like this. And they've yes. met one person. And that one contact just ruins everything, but it's also inside for them, there's an inherent fear for a few of these friends I have. Small town, very red state, very conservative state. They're afraid that not only are these individuals, but also Central South American immigrants and others are going to take their jobs, affect any of their rights. So all of it just compounds and leads them to just basically fearful things. And it goes back to that whole idea of integrated threat for me. I mean, you talk about the differences in terms of the way that threat is perceived by the dominant group. Uh, in terms of, I guess what you're talking about there is what you would classify as realistic threats. So economic challenge may be in some, to some degree from, in terms of immigration, uh, a realistic threat. And then there's also symbolic threats as well. Yes. And the realistic is really that people are afraid that these new individuals that are the minority, and it could even be like in the United States, we, it doesn't even have to be an immigrant. It could just be the presence of, say, African Americans or black they would say here, but just a minority group is going to take away their economic rights, to take away their jobs, or it's going to take away their access to health care, is going to take away something tangible, their access to houses, like it's going to buy up more houses so they can get something that they find tangible, is the more realistic threat. And that's one of the big things happening throughout, like in Germany, 
is the idea that they're going to make social services harder for us to get. We saw that in Finland quite a bit. Finns argued that with all of these migrants coming in, how are we going to pay for their social services? Where are we going to house them? What happens in the hospital services? What about unemployment? All of these economic kind of questions were asked really in the Finnish context. But then when you have places like in France, when I was doing the research, it's much more their symbolic threat. The idea of symbolic threat is that this new group is going to change what it means to be Australian, what French means, is they're basically going to just change our culture. And they're going to change the idea of Frenchness. And this has been something I've seen for over a decade now doing research in France, is the non-immigrant French individual, almost all the ones I've interviewed, I would say the majority of the ones I've interviewed have talked about how the North African presence now, the Malaysian, Indonesian, Vietnamese presence, is, and even now the Eastern European presence, is diluting French identity. And that's a more serious threat. That does seem like a cultural genocide threat to the people yeah. who hold it, essentially. Yeah, because that's when you can't reverse. You can reverse the realistic threats by passing laws, making it impossible for them to enter schools, keeping them in these like ghettos or these camps outside of town. You can make it so they can't access medical services except in the camps. You can do things like that in some countries, which they've done in the EU. You can put up fences to keep them out. But once they get into the population and they start, for example, mixing and breeding with the dominant group and start having more children, the culture is just lost for some people. Yeah. And that's what the white genocide comes back to. Well, uh, they are ruining the white race. I mean, perhaps the issue is really just the uh, speaking to historians about this. I've spoken to, spoken to a historian, um, Nick Brody, who's an Australian historian, but the idea that culture is a static thing. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. always a kind of a, you know, people have a, a tendency and across cultures, this occurs as well to a golden age when their culture was kind of pure. And then the, oh, yeah. there's this threat that, that culture is going to be somehow, uh, there's going to be some kind of a mutant, you know, mutiny or the culture is going to be taken over and changed, uh, irreparably when cultures are es- essentially, uh, living things that, that like an organism that changes all the time. Yeah. Yeah, but you have people in almost almost in every culture, you have people who want to stay the way it is, but actually would prefer it to be this golden age that they never lived in. (laughs) And it's well, golden age usually never existed. Exactly, never existed. But when new things come in, they're like, "Wait a minute, no, we can't have this because it's ruining what never was." Well, it's, it, it always seems to me that the dominant culture, as you have, uh, this is in terms of that symbolic threat, the dominant culture will uh, most likely change the culture that's coming in, essentially, to, to possibly, a, most likely, a greater extent than the culture that's coming in will change the dominant culture. So there'll be movements around a sort of a mean in terms of cultural changes. And and those... those uh, you know, those changes have been going since before the agricultural revolution, you know. So yeah. um, I think we're, uh, there's, a, there's a fear around something that's, that's like, like I said, a cultural death or something. Um, yes. And we see that. So people writing about the, you know, sort of almost like a, uh, 
almost like a grieving of a culture uh, that's lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what's happening with some of these groups, like you know, you know, in Norway, you know, the mass killing in Norway a few years ago. One of the things that he argued was that you know the political parties were allowing immigrants to come in and ruin Norwegian society. Yes. Well, I mean, that there is an element of scapegoating as well, isn't there? I mean, that yeah. in terms of politics, uh, and mm-hmm. you can see this across the world and it, it, it occurs yeah. uh, whenever there's sort of like political expedience that it, it is easier to, to uh, scapegoat a particular group um, or a particular yeah. issue to draw attention away from uh, other things, essentially. Um, I suppose the challenge, one of your, so you listed, um, in your articles, the article for the conversation, which I read, which was these ways of kind of combating and breaking down these really strong in-group, out-group differences. And, and, you know, you started off with challenging racist or hateful speech. Um, yeah. and I think this seems to be particularly in our age where there's so much interconnectivity through the internet, um, and so, and, all, and and the democratization of voice, this seems to be one of the most difficult things because once again, it comes down to you know how we define these things. That seems to be the thing that it keeps coming back to me. So since Christchurch, I mean, lots of different conservative commentators, conservative think tanks have been blamed, and some of that is around. Uh, it seems to me around you know sort of taking advantage of a sort of a political, almost making it a political event. But uh, I guess, do we have an issue in terms of discernment around this? What do you mean? I'll, I'll give you an example. I spoke with the Shadow Attorney General of the Rudd government, who was uh, the Rudd government uh, began in 2007, um, and that was sort of the beginning of our tumultuous political period. Uh, his name was Calvin Thompson, and he'd been uh, an environmentalist, fairly you know, progressive, but one of the focuses of his study was population science. And he'd worked a lot around immigration. And so he'd made an argument whilst a federal minister, the shadow attorney general, around immigration. It was essentially an economic argument around the way that we're growing the population versus GDP versus our ability to sustain infrastructure and things like that. So it's not a racist argument, but he almost instantly got labelled a racist. And that to me Mm -hmm. seems to be... That lack of discernment around this seems to be part of the problem. And then I think people, it forces people apart as well, that reactionary element to it. And I wonder what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, okay. It's not black and white, that's for sure. There is no, is this racist, is this not, is this hate speech, is this not? There is no black and white or easy answer to it. I think that, like in the US and in the United States, when it comes to some of this, there's always the idea of the marketplace of ideas kind of kind of settles some of this where if a message is put out there, basically the people decide whether it's racist or not, which has its advantages and disadvantages, I suppose, where recently, I forget where she's from, but one of the new House of Representative members kind of went very adamantly against uh, Israel, and she's had quite a bit of heat for it. Some would call it racist. Others would call it a voice of fresh air when it comes to Zionism and so forth. And so I think we have to approach these things just carefully. And in some ways, some people could do this, others can't. We have to just 
use our own better judgment, which isn't always easy to do. But I think we do have to allow people to express themselves. But then at the same time, my own feeling is in, in most cases, we'll be able to spot racism. It's the fringe ones that we'll have to kind of debate. And I think we need to be able to have those debates. We need to have discussions. We need to have debates. You're listening to Dr. Mark Keller in conversation with Professor Stephen Croucher, head of the School of Communication, Journalism and Marketing at Massey University, New Zealand. I mean, there are clearly demonstrable examples of racist and hate speech, of people inciting violence, of people talking about racial superiority. I think that the problem is when the... See, I suppose when people are called racist, it can simply be an ad hominem attack because the person doesn't want to countenance whatever the person's argument is, uh, essentially. Yeah, and they don't know how to respond. They don't know how to... Like, you know, I had someone recently say to me where we had a discussion here in... On one of the days, maybe the week after the attack, there was a call here in New Zealand for many women to wear a hijab, to wear a headscarf. And one of my responses was that, you know, the history of the headscarf is very controversial. There are many women who in Islam, detest the headscarf because of its cultural background, because of the, uh, the, the masculine dominance of the headscarf. But there are many women who are now very for the headscarf. And so it's really, it's a very debated garment. And so my, someone asked me what my thought was of it, and I said, you know, I don't support the idea of women wearing the headscarf, because also I don't think many women should wear it unless they know what the headscarf stands for unless they know the true background of where the headscarf came from and where the act of hijab came from. And the colleague I was speaking to said, that's interesting because in some contexts they would say that's a very racist kind of very derogatory argument, but others would like to have that discussion because it's actually a very productive, very logical kind of argument. And so I think it's a matter of the audience you're in and who you're having these conversations with is important as well. Well, I wondered whether, see, I I think that we... You know, we can clearly identify in-group talk or in-group dialogue and narrative which is problematic and which is radicalizing and which draws people in and creates enmity between groups. So, you know, racist, white supremacist, white nationalist narratives. I think part of the issue is when that is extended to almost academic debate. I mean, I don't know whether it's been exaggerated in the US in terms of the uh, deplatforming that occurs in American universities and which is occurring out here to some extent. But that seems to be part of the problem because anyone who's on the fringe essentially sees people who are trying to shut down what seems to be a reasonable discussion, uh, a collegial discussion. They see that as evidence that there's something wrong that's occurring from, from that outgroup if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. My feeling is, you know, I think that we need to have these discussions. Sometimes it's important to have, difficult to have conversations. I think we need to have them. So, yeah. Yeah, because I guess that's what we're saying. If people are afraid and they're scared Mm -hmm. and they're anxious, they're going to want to look for for someone to blame. And you can immediately blame the person who's done it. And that's, that's one of the most correct responses and their and any group that they're associated with but then beyond that is where it becomes problematic so if you start to blame say the new atheists or i don't know Douglas Murray who wrote the book about the strange death of europe that's when it starts to become 
somewhat problematic, even though some of their arguments, I would say, are well, quite a few of their arguments are extreme and perhaps not as nuanced as what they could be. Yeah, I agree. I suppose I wanted to talk about the conditions under which this type of radicalization occurs. Well, I think it really occurs when people can't really handle it. I mean, the idea of fear is really, it is a continuum where some people, I think all of us have a level of ethnocentrism. Mm. We're all ethnocentric to a point. We all look at our own group as kind of the best in some way. And that's, it's okay. We're all a little ethnocentric, all of us to a point. But then when it goes so far where people can't see themselves surviving in the current state, where they can't see their group thriving in the current state of things, as they see a future in which their group will no longer be the dominant group, and they see this other group like these, you know, these Muslim hordes basically coming into Europe and taking over, when they have this rationalization and this emotional, like, you know, taking these emotions taking over, for some people, it just clicks and they pass over that threshold. And ethnocentrism and basic, and, and then prejudice turn into feelings of hate, which then turn into feelings that I need to take action and I need to do something. And that something isn't just protest, that something becomes violence. And it's different for every for every person. So there is no, like, clear line. But it, I mean, it's just, it's so different for each person, that psychology. It's, yes. But something pushes them to that extreme where they get so pushed, where they think something's going to make it so my life will no longer be the same. So I have to act out. Having read about this, and, and certainly my understanding of it is fairly superficial, as I said, I talked about this with the moral philosopher, and they talked about you know how people, when they're in groups, they develop a type of a moral fog. So, and talk about it in terms of Rwandan farmers uh, massacring Tutsis. So, essentially, normal people in their everyday life change and develop this sort of pathological groupthink that results in murder, massacre, genocide. There was a great researcher in the 1950s and 60s, and she kept researching later in life. We talked about this idea of spiral of silence as well. And one of the things she was looking at, her name was Noelle Neumann. And she asked the question, she was German, and she was interested in what could lead so many Germans to sit back and allow the Nazi genocide to take place. And yes. what she found was that when people are sit back, when they're kind of, when, when they think they're in the minority, they don't want to speak up and look stupid, basically. They don't want to speak up and say, I'm the only one who disagrees. But also, when there's this, like, dominant person, but basically, when the person is wearing a lab coat, they clearly have the right opinion, so why am I thinking this way? Clearly, I'm wrong. And so, one of the things she argues is people felt like they were clearly in the minority, because there's all these big rallies, there's all these big protests, all these big supporters, all these people, you know, waving their arms in the air, saying, you know, and everything, so clearly, I must be wrong with here, so I guess all this, you know, everything's good, I guess it was right. And we see the same thing with some of these big protests and all these yeah. big rallies and everything. And people get online, they read all this stuff, and they're like, wow, all these great ideas. Are they great? I guess they must be. There's all these people posting this stuff. And they kind of fall into that group thing, but they then fall into that spiral of silence. And it's just a downward spiral from there. That's interesting because I think the white coat phenomena is born from the Milgram experiments, which tried to explain yep. what occurred in Nazi Germany. And people sort of started asking questions like, were the German people different? But essentially, they're not. Uh, there, was, there was nothing different about yep. German people. 
Uh, and to some extent, I think that, well, the Nazi party was a minority that was able to influence a majority. It didn't start uh-huh. with genocide. It started with small animosities and ethnocentrism and, yeah. you know, promises of return to a golden age and then gradually moved along and people gradually move along with these things and their moral compass becomes, as an individual, completely lost. In terms of lynch mobs, it's called de-individuation. So you just lose yourself yeah. in the mob. Most people are, they may be racist, they probably are racist, but they're normal people. They would never have committed any violence, but put in the context of a mob, they are influenced. And it seems now the mobs are virtual, they are echo chambers on the internet, and oh, then yeah. it results with one person taking action. The interesting thing about the Christchurch shooter and people like Dylan Roof, both were people who said that they'd take action. Everyone's talking, we're going to take action. And I was interested in this, and like I said, I've only got a superficial understanding of it, but the culture, it seemed like there were lots of similarities between them, both producing a manifesto, both self-radicalised after search on the internet. So the Charleston Church shooter, he travelled around the US looking at civil war sites and slavery sites leading up to this, and the same thing with the Christchurch shooter. It seems like there's almost a culture around how to behave and how to do these things. Developing. Becoming very much that, I think, over almost the past decade. It's more and more becoming that, and I think it's becoming easier and easier for that to develop with social media, because they're getting a following. We see a parallel with that when it comes to school shootings in the U.S., is that these, a lot of these kids would get years ago, I mean, decades ago, I mean, school shootings aren't a new thing. They were happening, you know. 30 years ago, but on a very limited scale. But now the fact they're happening more because people who do it can leave a diary, can leave a manifesto online and can, you know, they think they're going to be forever remembered. Like, I appreciate that, you know, our prime minister here isn't even mentioning the shooter's name because they're trying to basically take away his fame. And that's what they're wanting. They're wanting to be known. They're wanting that fame online for their, you know, adoring fans. That is a contentious issue in terms of mentioning the person's name. Because that can be a signal in terms of which in-group you belong to as well. Yeah, I won't mention his name. Yes, and that's understandable. I mean, well, the same argument's been made in terms of the, um, the development of the recent documentary about Ted Bundy. Yeah. Why is the focus still continually on this person and not on the victims themselves? I suppose that cultural thing, which was here to it around Christian and Muslim conflict sites throughout Europe, and it's also, there was some suggestion whether he was, you know, because he'd trained, allegedly trained with um, the Azov Battalion, which is a white supremacist neo-Nazi group yep. in the Ukraine, whether he might be actually like a first example of a, um, a white supremacist foreign fighter. Yeah, I mean, really, if you think about it, if you take a whole different approach, if you think back to the 1980s when, you know, Al-Qaeda was really just forming under Osama bin Laden after the Afghan war in the 1980s and 90s, no one would have predicted what Al-Qaeda would have become. And then you have now, who knows what's really developing? We never know with, you know, terrorism or other types of manifestations, how they'll develop, how these networks, how these systems will develop. It's one of the things, if you look at, you know, systems theory, you know, the whole idea of systems is that they're not just one line. They're these like big webs of things, and we don't know what they're going to do or how they're developing. We have no idea what the next 10 years or someone's going to hold with this whole idea of these white supremacists, these alt-right, I almost would say terror groups. We don't know. 
It's quite terrifying. I mean, they, they talk about yeah. the similarity is actually with jihadist groups, essentially, in terms of tactic. Yeah. They've borrowed the same tactics. Yeah, they are. That's why I said they're kind of like you know, the beginnings of Al-Qaeda. You're listening to Dr. Mark Keller in conversation with Professor Stephen Croucher, head of the School of Communication, Journalism and Marketing at Massey University, New Zealand. Interestingly enough, and I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but when I read the, the framework that you work from, integrated threat theory, I was reminded of a theory within social psychology called terror management theory. Yes. So I was interested in talking about that because it seemed that the idea within terror management theory is that everyone is aware of their mortality and, and anxious and frightened of death. And so nationalist ideas and culture and religion offer symbolic immortality. And mm-hmm. I wondered if you thought this was at play with these types of individuals and groups. I think that you know, the fact that you know we have this you know, immortality and you know our religion and our you know, all this symbolism, but then when you have these new groups coming in, they're changing our culture, they're changing our mortality, they're changing what our afterlife could look like. What do you mean exactly? That if our culture changes around us, imagine if our religion, our God, loses prominence in our society. Oh, that's the threat, essentially. That's the threat from another culture coming in. So that's the threat to the, we'll call it a nationalist framework, but it could be any framework, essentially. It could be a theocracy or whatever else. You know, for a lot of these groups, I mean, they talk about how, you know, they're they're really fighting the good fight for Christianity. But until they really started to fear immigrants, particularly Muslim immigrants, they probably were not all that devout Christians, probably. It was this fear that made Christianity more salient for them. And I bet if you ask some of them really a lot of questions about Christianity, they probably wouldn't know very much. You know, I mean, lots of people are, I suppose, to varying degrees ignorant of their own ideologies, aren't they? Yeah. But I, when I thought about that theory, like the terror management theory, was yeah. that the benefit of either becoming a jihadist martyr or a nationalist who goes out and commits an horrific crime, a massacre, is that their feeling is that they become somewhat of a a cultural hero and they attain a sort of a symbolic immortality. That's true. I I would agree with that, yes. And so the idea then of not talking about the person and their crime is a way of taking that away, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about the levels of perception of threats as well, the way that people perceive threat that can lead to negative stereotypes, because that's essentially what occurs, isn't it? I mean, whenever we take something that we believe about a group and apply it to everybody in the group, it's just a rule of thumb, and there can be negative and positive stereotypes. I was wondering how these things develop at a cognitive level. I think it really depends on the context in which the people are in. Where if you have, say, like more of a socialist state, you know, Finland, which is more of a social welfare state, and you have individuals who are really worried that they're going to lose their social benefits because of the rise of migrants and so on, for them, the idea of those realistic threats are going to be more salient for them. So that is going to lead to more stereotyping. And so I think there, that's where it's more of a significant issue. In France, while they are more of a social welfare state, nowhere near as much as Finland, historically, this is where the context comes in, historically, culture, Frenchness has always been a significant issue for French society and culture, and particularly French language. And so this is where anything that is seen to threaten what it means to be French is going to be much more salient, and therefore, 
this is where stereotypes will emerge from anything that is seen to really threaten those issues that are more salient. So it really is context-based. Well, I guess, you know, from a colonizing perspective, when empires have colonized, one of the first things they tend to go for is language. And people become very nationalistic around language, it seems. Yes, they do. I guess, well, language and culture are almost inseparable. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, (laughs) very Uh, much so. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was a kind of an othering and, and how we can kind of other people that are further away from us. I mean, the response to New Zealand uh, worldwide has been justifiably, the international yeah. community has been shocked. But the other day, 134 Muslims were killed in Mali, Fulani villages, yeah. um, because they had perceived links to a jihadist group and this was perpetrated by uh, uh, the Dogon ethnic group. That doesn't seem to generate the same amount of shock. I mean, I can talk about some of the reasons that are, that is because we've talked about New Zealand being a place that is that is safe. It's a society where people have freedom and democracy and all those sorts of things. And, and to some extent, we kind of become numb to these atrocities that occur in other places. But I think, should we? I don't think we should, no. I mean, it's we shouldn't. How can we not? How can we change this? Because I think that all of these events are things that we should respond to, aren't they? I think we should, and I think that's one of the things we need to, I think, in order to change that, is it does come down to our media choice, I think, and how people respond to these when they happen. So how the consumer responds is important, and the conversations we have, I think, is important. It's one of the first things. So it's not just what we're fed, but it's how we respond when things happen. So I think the consumer is important. I think it's one of the first things. A few years ago, there was you know, a massive shooting also in Turkey, I think, two or three years ago, and no one, there was like two or three days, and that was it, and it was gone. And I think that's, we need to, as consumers of, of media, hold them accountable and say, you know, we need more about this, we need to know more about this, don't let this point, we need to talk more about it. And I think really emphasize that. I think it's also a matter of how media frame these issues, and really to talk about that it wasn't just, like if an event happens, you know, in Mali, Niger, Nigeria. It wasn't just another African tribe killing another African tribe. It wasn't just another corrupt person doing this. It wasn't just X. It was just X and X. Giving more context and explaining what happened and why. That way, those who are unfamiliar with the region can understand what is going on. I, I think, think that's important. I think that humanizes it, doesn't it? And that's part yeah. of what you were talking about earlier is that, you know, I think bringing people together, people realize that, well, there, there might be vast cultural and social differences between people but that doesn't mean that they're not essential commonalities between us all yeah over 130 people were killed that's that's significant and no one's talking about it and was any money raised for that probably not no i guess there's the complacency but what we've been talking about is the psychology and the politics of hate and how hate develops and to me yeah. it seems as though hate is always the dehumanization of other people whether it's a massacre in a palestinian refugee camp by lebanese christian militia or whether it's nazi germany or any other place any other type of ethnic cleansing you have to see other people as not being human anymore and that seems to yeah. be the problem I wondered if you had any final thoughts. I just have to say I'm really happy about how the government here is responding to the events by really focusing on how we can bring people together. I've seen too many of these events happen in other countries where one of the biggest issues has been who to blame, 
Let's look at how we can monitor people more. Let's look at punishment. And I've seen the rhetoric go nasty way too fast. I think here the rhetoric has been one of bringing together of one of peace and reconciliation more than anything. I think that's something that I really am very happy to see because if we go to that place of of hate, I think here one of the things I'm very happy to see is that that's where at least the leaders and the people are trying not to go. And that's something I think we need to really, as a broader society, really try to stay there as much as we can. It seems like the world has uh, is watched New Zealand and Jacinta Ardern and she and the government and the country have exemplified those ideas of bringing people together with positive contact, not scapegoating. And that seems to be the antidote to this. Yes. And even in like our workplace, we've spent a lot of time together, you know, our staff, just talking about the issue, just having conversations, just more time around coffee and water coolers together and things like that. And I think those conversations are where people need to be when these events happen and having those positive times together. I think that's just what we need more of. It might sound corny for some people, but I think that's what we need more of in this world. Yes. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And so there was the interview. Stephen Crouch in conversation with Mark Halloran. And it's such a complex problem to solve. How to stop alienated, usually men, from enacting the most uh, horrific of revenges upon an innocent population. Mm. One of the things I was interested in was his advice to asylum seekers who find themselves en masse, in a way, in a small centre. He basically says that they're partly responsible for making sure they're integrated into their communities. They can't just sit on doorsteps, you know. They have to find a way of, of making some contribution. Mm. Don't you think that's a really hard ask? They've got probably a language problem. They're probably treated with distrust wherever yeah. they congregate in a small group. Yeah. And to ask them to yeah. be the ones that make those overtures, pretty tough. Oh. I think it highlights a problem in terms of when we talk about multiculturalism in that we tend to like the idea. So we have communities that are accepting and Castle Main's a, a good example. But I think that we could always be better at being proactive in actively engaging people. Now that becomes more difficult when there are language barriers. It's very difficult to then make those relationships and sustain those mm. relationships. Mm. But that really is what we need to do as a community. It's not enough to say, oh, we just like multicultural communities and we're happy to, but we don't really actively engage with different members of the community who have different cultural backgrounds. I think that's important because some of those people, particularly asylum seekers, need a lot of support from the community that's adopting them. Mm. Yes, I agree, Mark. Yes. <laughs> Hey, I'm reading this book called by Carolyn Emke, Against Hate, and and this is what it says on the back. Racism, extremism, anti-democratic sentiment, our increasingly polarised world is dominated by a type of thinking that doubts others' positions but never its own. In a powerful challenge to fundamentalism in all its forms, Carolyn Emke, one of Germany's leading intellectuals, argues that we can only preserve individual freedom and protect people's rights by cherishing and celebrating diversity. 
That's easier said than done, Mark Halloran. Well, I would also say that when we talk about diversity, we don't need to just talk about diversity in terms of culture or ethnicity. We also need to talk about diversity in terms of thought and ideas. And I think we're not very good at that at the moment. Mm, you're right. Well, you know what? Next week, I thought we could replay an episode that we broadcast out of sequence. Right. Charles Firth. Oh, yes. It was part of the second series. Yes. So we can return to that. Yes. It was a great interview, very funny and forthright. Charles Firth, he's an yes. Australian comedian, best known as a member of the Chaser Productions, CNNNNN, and the Chasers wore on everything. Mm. And if you didn't hear that interview, then I invite you to listen next week for a repeat mm. of Mark's interview with Charles Firth. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.